0: he also glorified. You know, the last—I uh, uh, I guess back at the first of January, maybe the, the second weekend of January—I told you we were going to be in Romans eight for a while. Well, we're coming to the home stretch. We're—I we got a couple more messages out of Romans eight. You know, we we outlined the chapter in this way. That there's four key benefits that we receive as as Christians. Uh, The first is acceptance. The first half of chapter 8, or the first 17 verses, teach us that we experience divine acceptance because we've been justified by God through Jesus Christ. There's now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. And as a result of this, even suffering is one of those The privileges that we have as a Christian. Our experience with suffering for Christ followers is very different from that of non-Christ followers. And then the next section, which we're in this week in the next couple of weeks, is is suffering. Uh, I can now, or excuse me, is assurance. I can now expect good from all things. And then we're going to close out uh, on uh, March the, I guess it'll be the eighth, I think it is. Um, Brian Lumshu Chan is going to finish the chapter out with security and how we can be certain of eternal life. We've covered acceptance and suffering and this morning and next week, we're going to hit on that third great benefit that we receive because we've been justified by God. We're living life in the spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ as one of his followers. It's the word assurance. And verses 29 and 30, they really focus on giving us a future assurance of of our place in God's redemptive plan. But this morning, we're going to focus on verse 28. It gives us a different kind of assurance, an assurance that speaks to our life right now, where our lives intersect with our faith. You know, verse 28 is a verse that many of us have memorized. Um, it, we've had it quoted to us. Perhaps we have quoted it to other people at different times. It's also a verse that, uh, quite honestly, we can use at the wrong time. Uh, yeah, I, a few weeks back, I told you about, uh, you know, in 1993, when we got uh, the diagnosis with uh, MJ, and all that we went through uh, with that, And I never will forget, after the news broke in our church of what was happening and what we were facing, I mean, over the next couple of weeks, if I had one, I had 50 people come up to me and say, Jerry, so sorry to hear about what's happening, but we know that all things work together for good. Okay, so finally, one Sunday morning, actually, it was a Wednesday night. A Wednesday night, a guy was coming down the aisle. His name was Cecil Page. Cecil was a great guy. He was a deacon in our church. This was about two weeks or three weeks after uh, the diagnosis and the news broke. And he comes up to me and he starts to open his mouth. And I said, Cecil, if you quote Romans 8:28 to me, I swear before God, I'm going to smack you upside the head. And it was like one of those Hollywood moments, his mouth... But no sound was coming out because he was starting to quote Romans 8.28 to me, right? And I just couldn't handle it anymore. Couldn't stand to hear it. You know, when people are hurting uh and they're in pain, there's a time for encouraging them with the truth of Romans 8.28. But it's not typically at the outset or at the beginning of tragic news or when that pain is first being experienced. It, in, it is an appropriate time and it takes wisdom to know when to bring this truth back around to someone at the uh, at the right time and dependence upon the holy spirit is important there but this morning we're going to focus on verse 28 we're not going to focus on timing and when do you tell somebody romans 8:28 and when you don't know we're not going to focus on that well we're going to focus on on what it does it primarily mean because there's a lot of wrong interpretations and applications. So we're going to focus on the primary meaning so that we can understand what it's getting at, and then we'll focus on some applications for our daily life. Let's start right there with how people misinterpret it and misapply it. Typically, it happens in one of three ways. For example, you'll hear uh, this verse being applied to everybody and their brother. Right? And that's not the case at all. This verse is not teaching that all things work together for good for all people. Not at all. Um, this verse has natural constraints in it. You know whether this verse applies to you simply by how you answer some basic questions. So if you want to know, does this verse for me this morning, how would you answer the following? Do you love God? Do you love Jesus? Okay. He said, I think I do. I don't know. How do I know? The answer is real simple. Jesus gives it to us. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, there's a natural constraint, a boundary, a restriction that is put into this verse. It's in those very few words that say it's for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. So do you love God? Do you love Jesus? Do you desire to follow him, to live for him? Do you have a, a yearning in your heart to see him glorified? Do you want to obey him? And, and when you don't obey him, are you grief stricken in your soul? Is there a sense of sorrow and conviction when you don't obey? Well, if not... And it's very possible that for some of us here this morning, this isn't the case. And it's important that we're honest with ourselves on this question. If not, I want to encourage you that your starting point is not to claim this promise for yourself. Your starting point is to begin to pray and to ask God to give you a heart that loves him, that loves his son, Jesus Christ. This is where it starts for you. And you know, if, this, if this is describing you, I want to encourage you. At the close of the service, come see me. Go to our care center over here to my right, and we'll have people there who can talk to you about this. Many of us, however, are, would probably say, Well, yes, Jerry, I love God, but I don't love him the way I want to love him, right? My love is hot and cold and all over the place. And so before we move to the next you know, misunderstanding of this verse, let me just leave you with a, a wisdom nugget from Dr. R.C. Sproul. He writes, the whole point of studying Scripture is that we might love God more. The better we know Him, the easier it is for our hearts to be inflamed with affection for Him. It is difficult, nay impossible, to love an unknown quantity. If you find yourself and your, your love for God waxing cold, then start with what does your personal worship look like? Are you spending time in the Word, studying? Are you praying? Is the only time you sing to the Father on Sunday morning? Is the only time you really look at the Scriptures on Sunday morning? If so, your love is going to be all over the place. If you want to see it growing and thriving, study and pray and worship Monday to Saturday, not just on Sunday. So this verse is not for everybody. This verse is also not teaching, uh, so this verse is also not saying that all things are good. Sin is not good. Disease and death is not good. Being the victim of a crime is not good. It's not pleasant. This verse is not uh, encouraging Christians to have some idealistic Pollyanna view of the world where we call evil Good. Or something that is tragic and painful. Oh Well, that's not really what it is. There's something else. No, there is evil and there is pain and there is tragedy and there is suffering in this world. And this verse is not asking us as Christians to deny it. This verse is actually asking us to be very realistic about it and how we deal with it. And thirdly, this verse is not assuring us that the good God works in us is materialistic. I think Romans 8.28 and Jeremiah 29.11 are two of the most abused, misinterpreted, misapplied verses in evangelical Christianity, and I blame prosperity preachers for it. Jeremiah 29.11 is the verse that says, "You know, I know the plans that I have for you, God saith. Good, not evil, and and et cetera, et cetera. And that verse in Romans 8.28, it gets butchered. The meaning and the application. It typically will go like this. <clears throat> Maybe the pastor or the evangelist or, or the counselor will say, now, I know that you lost that really, really good job. The job of a lifetime that you thought you lost it, but don't you worry about it because God has a better job planned for you, right? And, and, and you're going to be happier, and you're going to be more prosperous in the new job. So while it hurts right now, just hold on, because a better day is coming. Okay. So in this perspective, good, the word good in Romans 28, is being interpreted in a very narrow, materialistic perspective. Good, it's being characterized by God making you wealthier, or more successful, or happier, or more significant. And, influential. and certainly, the good that God can work in our lives can include the physical and the, and the material world we live in. But primarily, the good that God is working in us is that which glorifies Him. And that may or may not be physical. It will always definitely include the spiritual realm and his kingdom and what he's doing in the spiritual realm. But it may not include physical good. It may not include material prosperity at all. The reality is, is that a person losing the better paying job who ends up spending the rest of his life And a lesser job, a job that doesn't provide as much money and as much job satisfaction, that individual in that situation, he is actually accomplishing and seeing God's good work accomplished in him just as much as the person who may get a better job. Because God's emphasis first and foremost is on that which glorifies him. That's how he defines good. I mean, this really does bring up an important question that we need to know the answer to this morning. We need to understand and know what is the good that God is working in us that glorifies him. What is that good? And if we understand and know that, we will know how to interpret and apply Romans 8:28. So I want to make sure we all know the answer to that question. What is the good That God works in us that glorifies him. Let's read this out loud together. Let's read this takeaway truth. Read it with me. God works in all things to accomplish his ultimate purpose of glorifying Christ in us and through us. Okay, now that you're halfway awake, let's read it again. Okay, one more time. God works in all things to accomplish his ultimate purpose of glorifying Christ in us and through us verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, there's our constraint, right? All things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, another constraint. For, verse 29, and that word for is important. It's going to explain the previous clause, his purposes. For. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Did you, did you catch the, that last clause? Go back and look at that last clause. Maybe underline that last clause. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God is working in us and through all the events of our lives for one Reason, primary reason, this is it. It's to glorify Christ. God's primary purpose behind his work in our lives and in our world is to see that Christ would be glorified, that He would be the preeminent one among all the universe. This is what he's doing. He says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. And He, Jesus, is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This means it is not our happiness but our holiness that God is focused on. It is not our comfort, but our Christ-likeness that he is working out. It it is not our success, but our spirit-filled life that he most desires. And it is certainly not material wealth, but it is our mind for Christ that God is rejoicing over. And so we have to accept the fact that even in the most painful events of our lives, God is using them to make us more like Christ. This is the good. It's not some material, physical perspective. Life's trials, life's sufferings, they are an aspect of God's loving purposes for us. Let's remember that Romans 8, 28 is set in the context of suffering. This verse puts a bow around the, the previous you know, 10, 11 verses. If, if all things means anything, what does all things mean? If it means anything, at the very least, it means the suffering that we've all been looking at because that's the context, the immediate context is Suffering. Does this mean that God doesn't work in things that aren't? No, he works in everything. But at the very least, the point that Paul is making here because he's talking about suffering is that in our suffering, God is at work and he's going to bring about good and that good glorifies Christ. From our early example, why would God not give one of his children a better job that pays more is more satisfying and instead have him work in a, a lesser job? Why would he not permit him more wealth and prosperity? How is that good? Because he knows better than we do what will impede and interfere with our holiness. He knows what will serve as an obstacle to us being conformed to the image of Christ. He knows that for some of us, More material wealth just means that we rely upon Christ less. That we end up worshiping things and trusting in things other than his son. And so God is much more concerned with our minds being focused on Christ than he is our material wealth. He's much more concerned with our holiness than he is with our happiness. He knows because he's omniscient what those things are that we will look to for security and comfort and significance. He knows those things that we will idolize and give our hearts to instead of Jesus Christ. And he will interfere and impede and move so that we are focused on what is actually good. So, this brings the most important question of the morning. This is the truth, right? The truth is this, God, in verse 28, God works in all things to accomplish his ultimate purpose of glorifying Christ in us and through us. Now the most important question of the morning, right? It's the most important question really of almost every Sunday morning. What's the question? So what? Say it with me. So what? Right? I mean, we need to always ask, so what? How does this truth apply to our everyday lives? I want to give you several applications this morning. First, our sins and the sins of others are not the final verdict of our lives. Our sins and the sins of others that are committed against us are not the final verdict of our lives. There's a a great story in the book of Genesis. It's the story of Joseph. Most of you know it, but maybe some of you don't, so I want to just hit the high points. Joseph was one of the 12 sons of the patriarch Jacob. He was the most loved of all the sons, even though at the time he was the youngest. He had ended up with a younger brother, Benjamin. His brothers were jealous, and so one day they conked him over the head, and they sold him into slavery, and he ultimately ends up in Egypt as a slave in a very influential man's house. He rises to the top of responsibility in that home, and what happens there? He again is sinned against. Just like his brothers conked him and sold him into slavery, now Potiphar's wife lies about him, and he ends up spending time for several years in a horrible prison ultimately, he gets out of that prison, he's promoted through the ranks, he becomes one of the highest governing officials in the land of Egypt, and one day God gives him a dream, right? The dream is you're going to have seven years of great crops and harvest, but then this will be seven years of famine, and so he leads the nation of Israel in a massive savings program, and they put away food, and when the famine hits, it strikes the Middle East, and one day, as here he is at the top of The governmental power in Egypt, his brothers, who now don't recognize him because it's been decades, they come before him and they want food and he recognizes them. They don't recognize him. He puts them, you know, he gets a little payback, which is kind of justifiable, but not too bad, right? He puts them through the ringer a little bit, worries them up, and finally he reveals himself. And when his brothers realize that he's alive, especially some of the brothers who were against the plan, they are are griefs. I mean, they're broken. They're repenting. They're expressing their sorrow and how they had sinned against him. And in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph says one of the most important things that applies to this subject and God's sovereignty. He says to those brothers, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for what? Good. And listen, I look across this audience this morning, and there's many of us who we carry around our past sin and our past mistakes like a ball and chain. And it holds us back and it weighs us down, and we never experience all the joy of our salvation because we're letting ourselves be defined by past failures and sin. And others of us this morning, you're carrying around a heavy weight not because of the sin that you committed, but because of the ways people sinned against you. And this has so affected your life and wounded you and hurt you. The, the, the impact of this has just got tendrils everywhere. And one of the great things I rejoice over in our church, the way God has moved the last several years, is the fact that people who are in pain and wounded because of sin, maybe it's addictions or it's miscellaneous, They've, they've brought it out into the light. And they're allowing God to heal that hurt and to actually use that sin in their past to minister to others who are then bringing their stuff out into the light and they're experiencing healing and they're experiencing the restoration that only the gospel can bring because God is redeeming your sinful past and He's working something good out of your sin. And many of you ladies and and others who have been abused in your past, as painful as that is, by bringing that out into the light and and participating, you know, the the groups of ladies that are getting together with Andrea, you're, you're doing something for the kingdom, not just yourself. Yes, it's incredibly beneficial for yourself. But God then turns and He uses that courage to bring the wounds out into the light to build his kingdom, because now you can speak the truth of gospel, God's love, and the gospel and the restoration that comes in the gospel to others who have that same buried pain. And so, the great application of Romans eight twenty eight isn't that that we're all going to have bigger houses and nicer cars and everything. Something much more significant than that is at play. The promise of rate 828 is we're not defined by our sins, and we're not defined by those who sin against us. But God redeems it. Another important application is that the good God is working, it will not always feel good. The good that God is working will not always feel good. We don't have to look any further than the experience of Jesus to see the truth and the validity of this application. Jesus takes on all the suffering that we deserve to experience. He takes on our death that we deserve to die because of our sins. And He did it because He knew. He knew. That by doing so, God was going to work a glorious future. God was going to redeem those who he had given to Jesus before the foundations of the world through his suffering. God was going to restore to him the glory that he laid aside when he took on human flesh. He knew these things, and because he did, he was willing to experience something that did not feel good at the time. You know, it's... I think this verse, it's important that we see that the third word, or the second and third word of this verse is we know. And we know, not and we feel. Emotions are important, but when it comes to something like this, God is calling us to trust Him, He's calling us to faith to trust the love and the goodness of God that he has for us, because from the beginning to the end, the gospel and the fruit of the gospel, the peace of the gospel, the joy of the gospel, it comes to us through faith. What we know to be true about God, and we put our lives there. A third application, our sins and the sins of others are not the final verdict. The good God is working will not always feel good. Thirdly, our heart's response to a circumstance, not the circumstance itself, determines the quality of our lives. It's our response to the circumstance. Listen, you have Christian A and you have Christian B. Christian A goes through an incredibly painful, even tragic situation. You can fill in the blank, you can imagine. We've all seen it. We, many of us have been through things that are tragic and painful, and they, they strike to the very, you know, center of our hearts and soul. And, and Christian A, their life becomes a disaster. They, maybe they become, they after you know, yes, there's grief, but it just goes on and on, and then they become bitter, and they become disillusioned and disappointed with God, and and their entire Christian experience becomes distorted and skewed. Christian B goes through equivalent or similar tragic situation, circumstances, and they grieve, and there's pain, and there may be anger and disappointment, but in time... Even if there's situational depression that can happen, their life begins to come out of that time of darkness. And in time, the joy of the Lord is restored in them. And they begin to rejoice in God and they begin to trust in God. And sometimes they experience this very surreal experience where they're rejoicing in God at the same time that they're crying because of their pain. And the trajectory of their life is very different than Christian A. Both have tragic circumstances. Two very different journeys in life. Why? Not the circumstances. It's the response to the circumstances. We cannot control our circumstances. God is sovereign over all, not us. What we can uh, influence is our response to those circumstances. Will we trust God? Will we say, Lord, as much as this hurts, as much as I don't like it, glorify yourself in me through this situation. Lord, as much as I hurt and I'm in pain, give me a new vision of your goodness and your love for me. Help me to see your goodness to me and all the other areas of life, even as I hurt in this area of my life another application because of this the truth of this passage we don't need to live in fear of the future that this verse is once again just establishing for us that god is sovereign over everything and in, we may experience difficult times including suffering but his plan for us is to take it takes these life events into account. His plan takes these things, and he knows they're coming. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, he's working, and he's guiding, and his providential care is in place. And for the children of God, there are absolutely no accidents and no coincidences. And if even the dice are being taken care of under the, the providential care of God, how much more are our lives And if we know that for those who love Him, God is at work and good is going to come out of this that glorifies Christ in us and through us, we don't have to be afraid of who gets elected as president. (laughs) Right? In fact, that stuff should not bother us at all. Because we should be resting so securely in the sovereign power of God that we know the person who is in the White House, is absolutely the person God wants in the White House, whether we agree with the guy or not. I don't understand God's plan. I mean, half the bozos in Congress I would never put there, right? I mean, man, we got some yahoos up there. But listen, it's not my place to say, what is God this all about? Right. And live in fear and worry and anxiety over how dysfunctional Congress is or how dysfunctional our. God is in control of this. He's going to work His good in our country for His glory. It may be uncomfortable at times for us, but He's not concerned with our happiness and comfort as much as He is our holiness. We gotta pound this into our heads, guys. Because evangelical American Christianity just equates being in God's will with being happy and wealthy and everything else. And that is just a load of hogwash. That's in the Greek. Okay? All right. Hey, one final application for us this morning. You know, our lives are filled with good things, aren't they? Even in the middle of our suffering, even when we grieve over lost loved ones or we struggle with illnesses and disease or we see things happening that hurt our hearts, maybe in our country we see things and while we're not to worry about it, doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. doesn't mean we don't grieve as we see God defamed in the public square, right? But at the same time, take a deep breath. Our lives are full of, of good things. I mean, I mean we, can't, we can't be guaranteed that the good is going to be the physical and material realm, but let's just stop for a moment and see how much of the good that God has brought to us in the material and physical realm, right? I mean, I, mean, I look at all of us. We all have clothes this morning on our backs, thank God, right? None of us had to walk 15 miles through the snow to get here. We have transportation and we have clothes. We have roofs over our heads. We enjoy the fellowship of the believers. We enjoy family, many of us, and, and we rejoice in that. All of us look pretty well fed. Some of us more than others, right? We have so much to be thankful for. And this passage reminds us of how good God is to us. If he's good to us through the worst things of life, How much more good, is that gooder? No, it's not a word. How much more good is he to us in the normal rhythms of life? And so this verse, it it once again establishes that our motivation, our encouragement for singing these beautiful songs and worshiping God is gratitude and thankfulness. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say what? Rejoice. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at this verse that is so influential. So many of us know it and we've quoted it and we've had it quoted to us, but God, help us to understand the truth of it and rest in that truth and have it applied into the everyday rhythms. Lord, this week, we're going to be tempted to worry and be anxious. Help us to rest in the truth of Romans 8.28. To feel secure and know that we are exactly where you want us. We will experience nothing in our lives that is outside your divine will. And that ultimately, no matter if it's a good experience or bad, you're going to use it to glorify Christ in us and through us. And Lord, that is our prayer as a church. We want to be a church that glorifies you, that you work through and you manifest your beauty, your power, your deity, your love into this community through us. May we be that kind of church, and may you do that in us as your brothers and sisters, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.